Uh, let's pray that God will be working during this time. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to be able to wrestle with your word. As we do, please be growing us in love of Jesus and in service for one another. Amen. Change of leadership. It always brings about some tension, doesn't it? I would have been interested to hear what you guys are talking about. You know, if it happens in the workplace, everyone's on edge waiting to see what this new boss is going to be like. You know, will people lose their job? Will there be a restructuring? What's the new norm going to be? Have you ever experienced this kind of leadership change at church, maybe? Uh, it's the same deal. I'm new at Snack. I know that under Phil, um, things have been going really great. God's, God's been very kind. People have been growing in their love for Jesus. But at some point, I'm not being a prophet at this point, at some point, Phil's going to finish up, right? It's inevitable. And I bet when this happens, the same questions are going to start happening. What's the new senior minister going to be like? What's going to change at Snack? In our story today, we're seeing a changeover of leadership in Israel. And remember, Israel, it's not like the, the nations that surround it, right? There's, there's a king, but he's supposed to listen to the prophets, God's prophets. And Elijah is the head prophet. But Elijah's just about to finish up here. This is how our story begins. Verse 1, we hear the time had come for the Lord to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. That's the start of the intrigue, right? A whirlwind. Now, when you, when you hear about a whirlwind, don't think about those kind of dust storms, you know, as you're driving through the road and you see those little things. It's not like that, okay? It's more like one of those whirlwinds that could lift up a whole village, right? In the Old Testament, a whirlwind was a way of capturing God as he made himself seen. The force and power of the wind... It captures his majesty and his holy presence. Usually when a whirlwind happens, something amazing happens. And so from the start of our story today, we're kind of looking out for this whirlwind. You know, when is God going to come down and powerfully lift up Elijah? And when this happens, Elijah's ministry is going to be done right. There's going to be a handover of leadership. And so far we're expecting that Elisha is going to be the guy to take the reins. And actually, this is going to be a critical moment for one of God's unfolding promises in Kings. So way back, way back in 1 Kings chapter 19, under King Ahab, the northern kingdom's looking pretty shaky. God's prophets have been killed. The people have abandoned God. And we see that Elijah's running away from Jezebel, this evil woman who's married to King Ahab. And it's at this time... God makes a promise to Elijah. He promises to bring judgment on the northern kingdom for all those who are going to persist in rejecting him. And to bring about this appointment, God tells Elijah to make... Uh, to bring about this judgment, sorry, God tells Elijah to make three appointments. He tells him to appoint Hazael as king over Aram. That's one of the enemy nations. Jehu as king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And the third one, Elisha. He's going to be the one to take over this prophetic ministry. And so since then, Elisha's kind of been his apprentice. He's ready to take over. But so far, Hazael and Jehu, they haven't been appointed king. And we're still awaiting for this judgment to take place. So that's kind of where we are right now. We're anticipating these things. 
And so once Elijah's gone, we expect Elisha's going to take over for him. He's going to finish these appointments and bring about this judgment on the, the kingdom, as well as save the people who stay faithful. So with anticipation of this handover today, some questions are bubbling away in our story. When and where will Elisha be taken up? And once this happens, what will life be like with Elisha as the new prophet? Well, with this, let's get into today's story. We first find Elijah and Elisha at Gilgal. There should be something on the map. Yeah, there you go. There's Gilgal. And there seems to be a bit of an uneasy tension between these two guys. Both know Elijah's about to be taken up, but they don't seem to be talking openly about it. Elijah turns to Elisha and says, Stay here. The Lord's sending me on to Bethel. It's an interesting thing for him to say to his apprentice, right? As some hear this and think maybe Elijah's a bit reluctant. He's not wanting to give over the ministry at this point. But I don't think there's anything to date to suggest that's the case. Instead, I think what's going on is Elijah's putting his apprentice to the test. He's wanting to make sure that when he's gone, Elisha is ready to take up the mantle. You see, being God's prophet, as you'd know when you've worked through kings, being God's prophet in a kingdom that's anti-God, it's hard work. It's lonely work. And if Elisha doesn't want to do this, he'd know all of this. If he doesn't want to do it, now is the time to pull out. Elisha responds, though. He pledges faithfulness to God and his master. He says, As the Lord lives... And as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So far, so good. And so they begin their journey to Bethel. There you go. Upon arriving, you can imagine them checking the sky just to see if there's a whirlwind coming. But nothing so far. But instead, they see this curious group. They're called the Sons of Prophets. We don't know much about these guys yet. They've popped up once. But they're going to be a regular feature in the coming chapters. Um, they're prophets that are faithful to God, so a rare breed at this point in time. And they seem to know that Elijah is going to be taken up, so they come up to Elisha saying, Do you know that the Lord will take your master away from you today? As you heard, Elisha is a bit abrupt, isn't he? He says, Yes, I know. Be quiet. You know, you think that's, that's a good way to shut down a conversation. But I don't reckon we can blame Elisha at this point. Uh, no one ever wants to hear that their friend's going to be taken from them. And given the kind of hard times these two have been through together, you can imagine their bond would be as close as it gets. And so for Elijah, hearing these words, it would have been like somebody putting a dagger through his heart. And what's more, it's actually putting the pressure on him too. As they're, asking, they're saying this, you know, you can imagine him thinking, if Elijah's going... It means I need to be ready to step up. Am I ready? And we're asking, is he ready? You know, it's putting the pressure on him. Well, Elijah, though, he again turns to Elisha, saying, Elisha, stay here. The Lord's sending me to Jericho. And once again, Elisha pledges his faithfulness. As the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they keep going to Jericho. No whirlwind comes down. Again, we're met by the sons of prophets. And again, they can't help but telling Elisha, do you know the Lord's going to take your master away from you today? He says, yes, I know, be quiet. And then Elisha says to Elijah one more time, stay here, the Lord's sending me to the Jordan. And a third time, Elisha replies, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, 
I will not leave you. Elijah, Elisha is saying he's faithful to his master, he's faithful to God. And so they head off towards the Jordan. You notice on this map, it's, it's kind of an interesting route. It's not the, the normal way we'd travel around. This makes a bit more sense uh, when Elisha does his return journey as he stops off at these towns. So they arrive at the river, and once again, these sons of prophets are waiting for them. We're told 50 this time. But there's something a bit different. It's like they know something's about to happen. And so instead of bustling up to Elisha, they keep their distance. They just watch. And as Elisha and his apprentice stand by the Jordan, Elijah takes off his mantle, kind of like a loose-fitting cloak. He rolls it up and he strikes the waters. And suddenly the Jordan parts in two. They walk through the middle, get to the other side. And once they cross over, Elijah turns to Elisha and he says, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Elijah responds, please let me inherit two shares of your spirit. Two shares, here's an interesting term. You find it in the book of Deuteronomy. It's an inheritance idea. It's a way of saying that the firstborn son is going to receive twice as many as the others. So in other words, what Elisha is saying, he's asking Elijah for the prophetic ministry, that he might inherit it, be the head prophet over all the other prophets. It's actually it's a striking thing for him to ask Elijah. It sounds kind of cool, doesn't it? You have all this power as a prophet. But actually, given what we know Elijah's been through, Elijah's, he's really asking for a lifetime of suffering and pain. It's the, it's the kind of request you'd only make if your number one priority is to serve God and to serve his mission. And it's with this now... We know that Elisha is ready to go. He's shown he's faithful. He's sticking with his master to the end. And he's showing he's willing to step up once he's gone. And so given this, Elijah's, resp- Elijah's response is a bit unexpected. He says, you've asked for something difficult here. Uh, but I think what he's actually saying is the prophetic ministry, it's not something that a man can give. It's God's prophet. God needs to give it. But so Elisha knows if he's received it, he's given a sign from Elisha. He says, if you see me being taken up from you, you'll have it. If not, you won't. So they continue walking. And actually, I think at this point, they seem a lot more relaxed. You hear in the story, they're walking and they're talking. There's none of that tension that we started with. All the critical matters have been addressed, and now they can just continue their relationship. But it's the calm before the storm. Literally, because mid-conversation, this chariot with horses made of fire suddenly appears and separates them. And finally, that whirlwind comes down and it powerfully lifts Elijah up into the heavens. It's an extraordinary event, isn't it? I can't think of anywhere else in the Bible where we see something like this. No one in the Old Testament, has been taken from the world in such extraordinary circumstances. And it's, it's also an appropriate send-off for Elijah. Despite how God has powerfully worked through him in the kingdom, for most of his ministry, he's been the underdog. He's been under attack in the shadows. But as Elijah's taken up into heaven to be with his father, he's vindicated 
He was on the right team. I'm sure for Elisha too, in years to come, he'd look back on this moment and he'd, he'd take great comfort knowing his master was vindicated. It'd be a reminder for him too, he's on the right team. An encouragement to keep going. But in this moment, as his master's torn from him, he's beside himself with sadness. You can feel the pain in his voice as he cries out over and over again, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. In these cries, it seems he's describing his master. My father, my father, he's showing respect for Elijah. And the chariots and horsemen of Israel, this is probably a title he's giving to Elijah, saying, it's like he's saying, the defender of Israel is gone. Elisha stuck with Elijah to the end. But just like that mid-conversation, his friends carried from him. And we hear Elisha never saw him again in this world. For us, as we serve the risen Jesus, the one who's now enthroned as the king over all, we've got every reason to know that we're on the right team as we, we live in this world. Every motivation to keep going. But just like Elisha, we're going to have to say goodbye to brothers and sisters, people who we've served alongside, people who we love, friends who we're not going to see again in this life. And I'm sure for many of you, you've already been through this experience. But in Jesus, in the life to come, we will see them again. Well, coming back to our story, as we think about Elijah's ascension, there's one key question we still need to be asking. Does anyone want to take a guess? Has Elisha inherited the ministry? I think that's what's going on. And the answer is a resounding yes. It's a bit of overkill, but we're giving four pieces of evidence which show this is the case. Firstly, Elisha saw Elijah being taken up. Verse 12, it says, as Elisha watched. And seeing his master being taken up, he's been given the sign. He's going to be the new Elijah. Second proof, Elisha does what Elijah does. After, giving his ma- uh, after grieving his master, he goes over to the river, picks up the mantle, which, by the way, is where the saying comes from, passing the mantle, picks up the mantle, hits the water and goes across again. The water's part in two. Elijah, Elisha does what Elijah does. At this point, we find our third proof when he gets across to the other side, the witnesses. And to this, we turn to the sons of prophets. You know those moments when you're in a room and you think you're all by yourself, and then suddenly you realize, ah, somebody else is there. How long have you been there for? I feel like in this story, it's that kind of moment, you know? Because what we find out is these guys, they've been here the whole time. They're standing at a distance, and what becomes apparent is they've witnessed everything. And so they conclude the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. So now we've got a group of 50 people who have witnessed this, who can attest that Elisha is the new prophet in town. And if that's not enough, to top it all off, we come to our fourth piece of evidence. Elijah's body's gone. The prophets, they want to make sure that he's actually gone. You know, I think they probably think it'd be awkward if Elisha starts doing his ministry and then Elijah pops up and suddenly there's two prophets in town. So they say, let's go on a journey, let's, let's look around. And they go away for three days, searching the mountains, the valleys. They don't find Elijah. He's definitely gone. 
And so when you add all this up, when you add the fact uh, of forgetting all of the evidence, the ascension, the miracle, the witnesses, the body's gone, one thing couldn't be clearer. Elisha is the new prophet in town. The mantle's been passed to him. And so God's going to continue to do his work through Elisha. As we talked about at the start, change of leadership always brings some tension and uncertainty. And so with Elisha in charge, one question remains. What will life be like with Elisha as the new prophet in town? In our final part of our story, we'll follow Elisha as he retraces his journey with, that he took with his master. And as he follows these footsteps of his master, so to speak, we'll see that in many ways, it's actually going to be business as usual. The first thing we see is that under Elisha, God continues to give life to those who humble themselves before him. His first encounter takes place in Jericho, where Elisha's been staying for a little bit while the sons of prophet did their search mission. And Jericho's got a sordid history. Back in the book of Joshua, as the Israelites conquer and destroy Jericho, Joshua puts a curse on the city. In chapter 6, we hear this. At that time, Joshua imposed this curse. The man who undertakes the building of this city, Jericho, is cursed before the Lord. He'll lay its foundation at the cost of his firstborn. He'll finish its gates at the cost of his youngest. And then earlier in 1 Kings 16, we see that under the reign of the evil king Ahab, a bloke called Heel, he decides he's going to have a crack at rebuilding this city. That's a no-no, right? And, and Joshua's words are fulfilled. As he rebuilds this, he loses two of his sons, just the way it's described here. And it, as Elisha's in this town, it seems that this city is still condemned, still under a curse. Because the men of the city come to Elisha and say, even though our Lord can see that the city's location is good, the water's bad and the land unfruitful. The city's cursed with a dodgy water supply. This is bad for any city, but especially a farming city. A polluted water is going to mean death for them. Death to their land, death to their livestock. And for them, as the people of Jericho, if the water doesn't kill them, they'll die of starvation. But these desperate people, they recognize Elisha as the prophet. That's why they call him, our Lord, our Lord. They've recognized it. And what's more, they humbly reach out to him for help. And what they find is that where there's death, God desires to give life. In response, Elisha says, bring me a new bowl and put in some salt. It's, a, it's an unusual request, isn't it? You know, we don't usually think that salt's going to improve water. But despite this, uh, these men in faith go out, they get the bowl, they get the salt. And when Elisha's got it, he walks over to the water supply, he throws the salt in it, and he declares these words. This is what the Lord says. I've healed this water. No longer will death or unfruitfulness result from it. The curse has been lifted. Instead of this water supply causing death, it's now going to be a source of fruitfulness and life. God's spoken these words of life through the prophet, and he keeps his word. 
That's the point in verse 22, where we hear, Therefore, the water remains healthy to this very day, according to the word that Elijah, Elisha spoke. When these rebellious men humbled themselves before Elisha, they were humbling themselves before God. And God's merciful with him, with them, lifting the curse of death for their rebellion, giving them life. Where there's death, God gives life. 3,000 years on, we live in a world that's still under a curse of death. It's not a curse from Joshua, but a curse nonetheless. In Romans 3, Paul tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In chapter 6, he says, For the wages of this sin is death. But God, out of his love, he decides to bring life where there's death. As Paul goes on to say in chapter 6, For the wages of sin is death, but the life of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God doesn't desire for this world to perish in sin. He desires for this world to trust in his Son, to repent and find eternal life in him. But for those who refuse to repent, for those who continue to hold out animosity to God, they'll continue in their sin and death. And this brings us to our last encounter today. And in this we see that with life under Elisha's ministry... God will still condemn those who oppose him. So Elisha leaves Jericho and he begins the rest of his journey home passing through Bethel. Welcome to the city, the capital city of idol worship. Right? I think that's what we're supposed to hear when we hear Bethel. Eight years prior, when Jeroboam ruled the northern kingdom, he made two golden calves. He put one in Dan, one in Bethel. And these calves were going to be something that people could worship instead of God. So Bethel, it's a dodgy place, right? People are persisting in worshipping this calf instead of God. And later in Kings 13, we see that because of this idolatry, one of God's prophets prophesies that the priests who make these dodgy sacrifices, they're going to be killed. This city too is under a curse of death. So here's Elisha. He's passing by Bethel, the capital city of idol worship. He's passing by this city when a large group of boys, they come out from the city. It seems they've recognized too that he's this new new prophet. That's why he's coming out to meet them, meet him. But unlike Jericho, they don't come up to Elisha in humility. Instead, they cut him off his journey to harass him. They're chanting, Go up, Baldy. Go up, Baldy. Now, I wouldn't recommend you say that to anybody, but especially not God's prophet. Elisha responds, cursing them in the name of the Lord. And then two female bears come from the woods and maul 42 of these boys. When we hear this, it's a bit hard to know how to take this story. It's so unusual, isn't it? When I was in the morning service, some people laughed. You know, and I think some people do just instinctively laugh out of shock. But for others, like you guys, obviously, it's just a bit more horrifying. It's worth slowing down on this this story and just trying to figure out what is God saying here. So we're going to look from three vantage points, the boys, the curse, and the bears. kind of sounds like a a cool 
uh, CD cover or something, the boys, the curse, and the bears. First, the boys. So there's a pack of them, at least 42, and they're calculated in what they're doing here. Elijah's passing by this city, and they've gone out of their way to cut him off and show their hostility towards God's new prophet. And then there's their ridicule. Get up, Baldy. Get up, Baldy. Uh, Baldy is probably a derogative way of them saying, you're nothing like Elijah. What's the one physical characteristic we know about Elijah? He's hairy, right? Now we hear that Elisha's bald. They're saying, you are nothing like Elijah. And then they say, get up, get up. It could be that they're saying, go to the temple and worship. Worship these idols, which would be bad. I think what they're saying is, get out of town. Keep going. You're no Elijah. Get out of here. And that's when we see Elijah's, Elisha's curse. This is our second vantage point. Some people say Elisha's reaction, it's just way over the top. You know, if he just had decaf that day, maybe things would be different. Yeah, that's how I feel when I have decaf. I don't, I don't quite do this. But, but notice whose name is the curse made in. Verse 24. In the name of the Lord. Elisha's not having a bad day here. God's working through his prophet to bring judgment on these people. And more importantly, he's bringing it on Bethel as a city. And this is where we come to our final vantage point, the bears. What's up with the bears? In, in Leviticus 26, I think we get a good clue here. Uh, this is what God warns will happen to those in Israel who continue uh, to be hostile towards him. He says, if you act with hostility towards me and are unwilling to obey me, I'll multiply your plague seven times for your sins. I'll send wild animals against you that will deprive you of your children, ravage your livestock and reduce your numbers until your roads are deserted. This bear attack's not random here. God's not just bringing judgment to these boys, but Bethel as a whole. It's a city that, despite being warned, continues to worship idols instead of the true God. It's a city that's not willing to repent and put their trust in God. At Jericho, we saw clearly that God desires to bring life where there's death. But sadly, where there's no repentance, judgment remains. If this is the kind of judgment we see for opposing one of God's prophets, how much worse if we oppose Jesus, God's son, who is appointed king over this world? And so to finish our time, I think we need to take stock of what's going on here. We need to ask this for ourselves. Is there sin in our life which we need to repent of? The ways that we're living at the moment, which are opposed to Jesus and his kingdom. Maybe there's an idol that you're serving. It's probably not going to be a literal idol like in Bethel. And yet anything that draws our devotion away from Jesus, our king, it's just as bad. It could be idols of work, leisure, sex, money. It could be anything, anything that's drawing our devotion from Jesus. If there's ongoing sin in your life that you're not 
repenting of, repent. This story of the bears, it brings a sober warning. How much worse for anybody who continues to defy God's king? Today, uh, we've witnessed a significant handover of leadership. Elijah's prophetic ministry has gone to Elisha. And these handovers, they always come with some tension. But strikingly, in many ways, Elisha's ministry is going to be pretty similar to Elijah. And that's because the God they serve is the same. And God never changes. God will never stand for idol worship. And he'll condemn those who continue rebelling against him in unrepentant sin. But God takes no delight to condemn a rebel. And where there's death, he desires to bring life. So keep coming to Jesus with humility and repentance, trusting in him, finding life in him.